On June 7, 2015, Sergeant Alfredo Santiago was the supervisor in charge of every officer at the shooting scene on Eleanora Avenue, plus every Northwest District Patrol officer working the Baker Shift that morning. Santiago was also one of the four officers who shot at Keith Davis Jr. According to Baltimore Police Policy 710, titled Categorical Use of Force and In-Custody Death Response, officers who use force are to remain on the scene until a permanent rank supervisor arrives. All officers who discharge their weapons are put on administrative leave and temporarily relieved of their police powers. It's not punitive, it's standard procedure. Santiago was the only officer with a permanent rank on duty. There wasn't a senior officer readily available to assume his authority or the duties that would normally be required of the shift supervisor following a major use of force incident. Like, for example, securing and maintaining the integrity of the scene and all witnesses, including separating all involved in witnessing officers and keeping them at the scene until an investigator from the force investigation team arrived. As an involved officer himself, Santiago was in a logistically squicky position. According to the crime scene log, Northwest District Major Mark Partee was the first superior officer to arrive at 10.43, 45 minutes after Keith was taken into custody. Until then, who was in charge? According to Officer Donald Burns, a 20-year veteran of the department, he was. Here's what he told Fit Detective DeGraffenreid later that afternoon. Um, we did get a call for a robbery up there, but I, I got kind of drafted from OIC to SIC, okay. so I kind of... I think it was after the accident, and that's why I said I, I don't want to speak in absolutes mm -hmm. on it, because I remember they said they needed to hold a witness that I had moved from the Northwest down to here, but I remember hearing on the radio chatter about a call, that I, and I don't know if it was in reference to this mm -hmm. or not, but I remember there was an, another call in addition to the accident okay. that was... Person, I, guess. I have no idea. I just remember saying, locate, go back and look for that person. The call that Donald Burns references was made to 911 by Charles Holden at 9.57 a.m. Mr. Holden, of course, was the victim of the attempted armed robbery that precipitated the police-involved shooting. Apparently, after the armed robber ran down St. Charles Street with officers Lane Eskins and Catherine Philippou in pursuit, Mr. Holden got back in his car and drove off. Then he called 911. Mr. Holden was on his way back to make a police report. According to the dispatch reports for both incidents, Eskins cleared the shooting and was assigned to the robbery call at 10.03 a.m. That means Eskins left the crime scene by himself, apparently to find a key civilian witness, and he didn't return for another 30 minutes. 
Here's Seth Stoughton, a professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law and a former police officer. What about, for example, um, an officer who discharges their weapon? I understand, like, obviously they have to secure the scene. But what about putting down markers for ballistic evidence, that kind of thing? Nope, Um, nope, 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 absolutely not. No, an officer who is involved in a use of force should do nothing related to the investigation of that use of force, except be a source of information. They don't gather information, they don't look for bloodstains, they don't look for uh, shell casings. They are shoveled off to the side with a liaison, and that's it. When Charles Holden went in for his interview with Fit Detectives later that afternoon, he already knew that the foot chase had ended in a shooting. He just about started running. Okay. He just about started running. That's when he started shooting the police. Okay. He told me, uh, and he started climbing back. I said, y'all get him. He said, we got him. I said, y'all kill him. He said, y'all responded. I don't know. I said, if I had to go to court, I'm going with a mask on. Because them motherfuckers be with the blood and all that shit. See me, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, but the, the, what do the officer say? He said, he said, you don't have to worry about that. He unresponded. Now I'm really going to make it or not. He jumped out and ran. The police started chasing him. That's all I know from there. Police said they got him. They shot him up. They got him. Okay. He was shooting back at the police. Uh, earlier you said something about him shooting the gun. No, the police told me when I got up to the other oh, station. Oh, so the police... Larry Smith Jr., a former Baltimore Police Department officer and internal affairs detective, told me that Eskins should have known better. I mean, Eskins should keep his mouth shut, and he knows that. I mean, they kept their mouth shut for six months, but for some reason <laughs> he wants to go. He wants to go tell Charles Holden all about it. You're completely tainting one of the witnesses in the case. So, again, that's another reason why you're supposed to separate witnesses. You're supposed to separate the involved officers. Like, you don't want to have a bunch of cops standing around getting their stories straight. Like, you're supposed to get everyone's story individually and not be tainted by somebody else's version of events. Yeah, what Eskins has done is is gone and completely poisoned Charles Holden for any potential interview he's going to give. Because now Holden has all this information in his head that Eskins has given him in any kind of investigation. It's something that we're taught as cops. You're not supposed to have witnesses interact with one another because what they can do is end up tainting each other's memory. So a witness may recall an event, but then have someone else or hear someone else's version, and then maybe second-guess themselves. Whereas maybe what they saw is actually what happened, but now they've heard or seen somebody else give testimony, and they're like, oh, well, well maybe that's not what I saw, or maybe, that, you know, maybe that's not what happened. Welcome to Undisclosed, The State versus Keith Davis Jr. This is episode three of our special series covering the case against Keith Davis Jr. in Baltimore, Maryland. My name is Rabia Chaudhry. I'm an attorney and author of the best-selling book, A Non-Story. This series is being investigated and reported by Amelia McDonald Perry, who has been on Keith's case for months now. Now look, if you missed the earlier episode in the series, you must go back and listen. 
because you need the full context. There's a lot to understand about what's going on here. And this is the story of a continuing injustice in Baltimore, one that maybe we can help prevent in some way. Because Keith, while facing trial for the fifth time, has yet to be convicted of a murder he likely did not commit. And also, it's a story worth listening to from the beginning. Most of my working day involves reading about crime, reporting on crime, investigating crime, and yeah, I have to admit, it does end up leaving me a little bit paranoid. There are also times I've been downright scared, but I feel much safer now that we have SimpliSafe in our home. SimpliSafe is a home security system that knows that it feels good to fear less. It's award-winning. It's got 24-7 protection that protects your home through it all. Blizzards, blackouts, burglars, all of it. SimpliSafe has won awards from all the tech experts that count, and The Verge calls it the best home security. It's also a two-time winner of CNET Editor's Choice and a Wirecutter Top Pick. Not only does SimpliSafe keep you safe, keeps me safe, it also is great because it doesn't have any contract. A lot of other home security systems do have contracts that are really hard to get out to, but SimpliSafe doesn't. There are no hidden fees. There are no gotchas. They always keep their prices fair and honest. And thanks to SimpliSafe, Fear has no place in a place like home. So try SimpliSafe with free shipping and free returns. You'll also get a 60-day risk-free trial. Order now and have your home protected within a week. Go to simplisafe.com slash undisclosed to get started today. That's SimpliSafe. It's spelled S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash undisclosed. Be sure to go there so you know that we sent you. The team that knows all about crime. SimpliSafe.com slash undisclosed. investigation team detectives Charles Anderson and Lakeishna de Graffenreid spent more than an hour interviewing hack driver Charles Holden. He described the armed robber as a 30-something black man with good-sized plaited hair. He was wearing blue shorts and a white t-shirt with a design on the front, and Mr. Holden didn't notice any visible tattoos when the man reached into his bag and pulled out a big shiny silver gun and told him to start driving. Keith Davis Jr., on the other hand, he was wearing blue jeans and a white tank top that showed off the tattoos that ran down the full lengths of his arms. He was 23 years old in June 2015, but his baby face didn't really look a day older than Chris Brown in the music video for the song No Air, which came out in 2008. After giving his statement, Charles Holden was also asked to look at a photo array of potential suspects in hopes that he might be able to identify the man who sat in the front seat of his car with that big shiny silver gun. Mr. Holden was presented with six mugshots of young 20-something men, none of whom had plaits in their hair. One of the photos was Keith Davis Jr.'s 2014 mugshot. Mr. Holden was not able to identify any of the men in the photo array as the man who had been in his car just a few hours before. There was also the fact that the gun recovered from Big Herb's auto repair on Eleanor Avenue where police shot Keith Davis Jr. It didn't match the shiny silver gun Mr. Holden described. 
the Sig Hammerly Trailside 22 long rifle. It had a silver slide, but the barrel was black and the multicolored laminated wood grip was unusual and really hard to miss. Here's Seth Stoughton again. That's one of those discrepancies that should make you step back and say, are we dealing with the right person here? Fit detectives honestly should not have been fixated on Charles Holden or the attempted armed robbery at all. They were tasked with investigating the police-involved shooting, which Mr. Holden didn't even witness. Here's my buddy Larry Smith again. So, like, the hack driver, the victim of the robbery, he was interviewed by fit detectives, uh-huh. but not separately interviewed by anybody investigating the crime against him. Didn't, who investigated the crime against him? The fit team. Right, but that's not their that's not their job. The robbery should be investigated by a robber detective. Fit and internal affairs were strictly administrative investigations. So if a use of force or misconduct arises out of the police investigating or responding to a criminal matter, the criminal matter still needs to be investigated, but by the proper entity. So a hack driver was robbed, so a robbery detective should handle the robbery portion of that whole incident. Mm-hmm. It's completely separate from what FIT is investigating. FIT is investigating the police-involved shooting. I mean, in my opinion, the robbery is irrelevant. To the FIT investigation. To, 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 to the FIT investigation. I mean, the FIT is investigating... There's a man in the garage and he's shot. What happened at the garage? Whatever led up to it, sure, you can include that in your report. Mm-hmm. Um, you can gather police reports, CAD reports, um, reports from the detective, from the patrol officers. You can gather all that, but you're not investigating the robbery. I mean, how can you investigate the robbery while you investigate the shooting? You don't have that kind of time or the, or, or the resources. I mean, that, that's, that's for a robbery detective to investigate. FIT is there to investigate whether the use of force is justified or not. The person may be guilty of a robbery. They may be guilty of possessing a gun. But that doesn't mean that officers are necessarily justified in their use of force. And that's what FIT is there to investigate. When Boyd shows up, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt here, there's a gun there. Is Boyd in a position now to be like, oh, use of force investigation, done. They were being threatened by this guy with a gun. I don't need to do anything else anymore. I mean, no, because it's it's a little more than a use of force. I mean, it's an actual shooting. I, I, you know, maybe if it was uh, if they had tased them or used their batons, maybe he would have closed it out quickly. But it was a shooting, so he needs to go through the entire investigation. Like the existence of the gun doesn't make his job easier. It doesn't mean he can just close it out. His job is to determine whether they were justified in shooting and whether the amount of force they used was justified. Handling the Hammerly was actually one of the first things Boyd did at the start of his investigation when he arrived shortly before 11 a.m. Before the crime scene technician could properly photograph and bag the gun for processing, it had to be rendered safe. Boyd removed the gun's magazine and checked the chamber of the gun and discovered both were empty. The gun wasn't loaded. And as the crime scene tech soon discovered, all of the fired bullets, shell casings, and metal fragments inside the garage were 40 caliber ammunition fired by the officer's Glock pistols and not the Hammerly trail side. The evidence about this has always been very clear. All of the bullets fired at 5202 Eleanor Avenue that morning came from police. Keith Davis Jr. 
never shot at anyone. Yet one week later, when the police filed 17 criminal charges against him, one of those charges included discharging a firearm. And then later, somehow, the prosecutors managed to get an actual indictment on that charge as well. And as a result, Keith was held without bail. For eight long months, through three trial postponements, that charge lingered, and few people questioned whether or not the officers who shot Keith Davis Jr. did anything wrong. Local media coverage was scant after reporter Ed Erickson wrote a story for the Baltimore City paper that effectively justified the use of force based on unconfirmed details from both the police department and the owner of the garage, Bigger Berkeley, who wasn't even present for the shooting. Freelance local reporter Baynard Woods was not convinced. He had spent a year reporting on another case investigated by the FIT unit, the death of Tyree Woodson, who was found shot inside the Southwest District Police Station, which the FIT unit had determined was a suicide. I guess that was around the time that I got the Tyree Woodson FIT at the time, Force Investigation Team report on the shooting. And so, like, I started trying to ask the same questions about the Keith Davis case, and, and it became clear that, that the main concern was making sure that this doesn't become a narrative and that there's not some kind of protest or something when when people hear that police uh, shot someone. And so it seemed like the first push that he was shooting was uh, among the most important parts of their narrative of it. And then and I was I was really dissatisfied with any response that I got from the department, which was essentially none. Um, as as so often in the Davis TJ Smith era era error as well, I guess. TJ was a great defensive player who primary purpose was to keep from giving the answers to anything. Ed Erickson's terrible story really spurred me to kind of look more in the, uh, I mean, the first thing that was really obvious there was like, I mean, it, it did add to the story of mm -hmm. talking to the garage guy, but when a gun is found in a garage and you just let the owner of the garage tell that story and no one else, that seemed really bad. And then I remember talking to another reporter during the, I guess it was during one of the Freddie Gray case trials. He said, oh, why would you look into that story? The, the son already reported that, uh, that he was shooting at the police. And I, I realized that the kind of, between Ed's story and then like the bias of um, according to police and the way that that gets lost um, mm -hmm. In, in the public mind that everyone had sort of made up their mind about this story. And, and yet the, the small group of activists who had been really reliable in the past were pushing that something else had happened. And so that's when I, I figured I, I would start trying to dig it up and, and see what, uh, what had actually happened with it. Baynard Wood's article for The Guardian, published in January 2016, includes the only interview Keith Davis Jr. has ever given. Keith told Baynard that his situation was a living nightmare. Keith's then-girlfriend and now-wife, Kelly Davis, and his attorney, LaToya Francis-Williams, both told Baynard Woods that the state had not yet provided the defense with statements from the four shooting officers, Alfredo Santiago, Lane Eskins, Catherine Philippou, and Israel Lopez. Wood's story was published on January 18th, 2016. As it turns out, Israel Lopez was the first of the four officers to give a statement to Internal Affairs on January 19th. 
Through a source, Woods was able to get a hold of the witness interviews Fitt had conducted early on in their investigation, with five witnessing officers who had been present for the shooting but didn't discharge their weapons, and two civilian witnesses who had fled from the garage seconds before the first shots were fired. Woods' article noted that a couple of the witnessing officers did say that Davis was shooting, but they didn't actually see muzzle fire, and instead were relying on the sound of gunfire, which they described as being of a lower caliber than their own 40 caliber Glock pistols. Hardly convincing enough evidence to outweigh the Hammerlee's empty magazine and the lack of any 22 caliber fired ammunition. Lo and behold, a month after Woods' article was published, on the first day of Keith's attempted armed robbery trial, prosecutor Lizette Ringgold Kirksey suddenly dropped the charge for discharging a firearm. She offered no explanation. Here's what the five witnessing officers agreed on. Dean McFadden, Donald Burns, Diana Brown, Thomas Kirby Jr., and Ian Meertens all heard Officer Lane Eskins on the police radio that morning, saying he was chasing a man armed with a gun from West Belvedere and St. Charles Street and heading in the direction of Linden Heights and Ricertown Road. At some point, shots were fired and dispatch called out a signal 13. At the garage on Eleonora, Sergeant Santiago had a bunker. The man inside had a gun and took cover behind a refrigerator. More shots were fired and verbal commands were issued throughout. They all remember seeing the four shooting officers as well as each other, either during or after the incident. The two civilian witnesses were unharmed, but the suspect was shot in his cheek. A medic was called repeatedly. It's a neat and tidy narrative, isn't it? But as Keith's defense attorney, Latoya Francis Williams, would later say in her closing arguments at the armed robbery trial, the devil is in the details, and their details were full of discrepancies. Here's what Miss Williams told me. You really want to be insulted. The initial interviews, uh, it's a circus. You know, a child could do better when it comes to investigating. The whole objective of getting a statement contemporaneous to, let's say, the incident or a shooting or a, a beating or something like that would be to, one, get the information fresh on an officer's mind, Two, hopefully it's accurate and truthful. But then three, to record with as much detail as possible. Let me listen to some of these interviews. First of all, what you don't, what they don't tell you is there's usually an interview before it's recorded. So mm -hmm. the officer already knows the questions that are coming, right? Number two is the number of times that you hear the interviewer chuckling and laughing as if this is like, a day out, getting some coffee in. We we really hate to inconvenience you, officer, such and such, but, you know, if you can just run through this quickly for us. Right, right. <laughs> it's it's yeah. to be on your way, you know. And so it, th that culture really does encourage the cover-up. And I, I think that really hit home for the police department when it came to Keith Davis because literally the nation really was watching Baltimore at that, yeah. literally at that time. And when you when you think about it, you know, it is a complex system in the state of Maryland when it comes to the police department. You know, the police department is really sheltered by the State Tort Claims Act, when you think about civil liability, the Local Government Tort Claims Act. And essentially, if you can establish as a victim that not only is this officer wrong, but the training is off, 
you knew about the officer being bad, you kept the officer, you know, on the streets, then that becomes a departmental problem. And the police department is not willing, at least not at this stage, they're not willing to, to shoulder that. So so, they're, so they feel like it is, they're better off playing this shell game. Let's do phony interviews. Let's do kind of crazy investigation. Let's focus on the victim. Try to dirty his name. Let's put out an initial statement to change the way in which the community is going to view what happened to this guy. And um, and they will spend more effort. I used to joke, um, not that it's funny, but I used to laugh and say, you know, I believe the police department has like a creative writing class. Oh because God, yeah. Some of these statement of charges, it's just outrageous. <laughs> because some of this stuff is so outrageous, you have to laugh to stop from crying. And if they spent half the energy... You know, teaching these cops how to be good cops <laughs> and teaching them how to stop making shit up. <laughs> you know, we'd be better for it. But I really do believe uh, they spend more energy on teaching police how to dodge. And, you know, I again, I laugh, but it's not funny. When it comes to getting an officer to testify under a, on a stand, you will get the most, I don't know, I can't remember, I'm not sure. Like, so they are the smartest mm-hmm. people around. You know, they know it all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when it comes down to talking about rules and regulations and guidelines and training and education and general orders, it's like, ma'am, I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember. Seth Stoughton told me that discrepancies across witness interviews are to be expected, but investigators can't know their significance unless they attempt to resolve them. Whenever you have a bunch of witnesses, discrepancies to some degree are inevitable. That's okay. Discrepancies are not the enemy of a good investigation. Discrepancies are, when properly treated, uh, a sign that the investigation is thorough. You are questioning everyone about a variety of different topics related to that incident, and you're saying, hey, the information I'm getting doesn't quite match. I need to push a little bit. I need to try and figure out why this information doesn't match. Sometimes it doesn't match because human memory is fallible. Sometimes discrepancies mean that someone is lying. Sometimes discrepancies mean that there is additional information that has to be gathered. So, for example, Officer 1 says, X, Officer 2 says not X, you might need to go review the forensic evidence or go review the scene or uh, figure out, okay, there's no way that both of them are providing good information. Uh, So that means I need to look for a third source of information or a fourth and a fifth and a sixth source of information to figure out which one of these stories is true. Even if it's entirely understandable that there was a discrepancy because of the fallible nature of human memory, I might still need to get to the truth so far as I am able. So a discrepancy can help an investigator identify where additional investigation needs to be done. Uh, you You don't just let it go. You either resolve it by finding the truth, or you explain it, or at the very least, you say, here it is, you identify the discrepancy and you explain that you tried to resolve it and it wasn't possible and you discuss where that leaves you. Right. Like this, this, is not, this is not rocket science, right? This is investigations, like, I guess it's not 101, but it's only 102. Ah, that's, that's, that's moderately a fall line. And, and issues like softball questions 
or not following up on obvious discrepancies, those are also signals of poor investigation. An investigator who already has his mind made up as to the conclusion. And that is almost always a mistake. And it's also a mistake that officers and investigators probably wouldn't make if they were investigating a civilian. five officers were interviewed five hours after the shooting by either Detective Charles Anderson or Lakeisha DeGraffenreid, while Ian Meertens was interviewed on June 26th for some reason by Detective Michael Boyd and Detective Joseph Peremsky. Absolutely no effort was put towards resolving the discrepancies that emerged between all of their statements. Instead, just as she did with Charles Holden, Detective DeGraffenreid cherry-picked only the most compelling and consistent elements of the officer's statements to include in Fitt's 24-hour report. Here's a sample of some of what she left out. Last week, you heard Donald Burns give a detailed description of the gun found in the garage. But here it is again. All right, um, did you see the weapon? Yes. Your gun. And what did his gun look like? Uh, semi-automatic, um, small caliber, had a small hole in the barrel. And what color was it? Uh, silver, black, and a multicolor handle. Silver and black. It looked. It looked like the. What part was silver? It looked like the slide was silver, and it had like a piece of black trim on the frame. Um, so, the slide silver. The handle silver. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Yeah, the hand. The hand. Uh, only thing because I. I've shot competition. Right. It was a. A wooden grip, which is like molded more like a hand, so it's, it's made out of laminate wood, so it's got multicolors to it. Alright, so wooden grip, silver slide. And it looked like a piece of the frame was black. Burns was one of the last officers on scene, and according to his account, he only got a look at the gun after Keith was taken into custody. Brown, on the other hand, was the first witnessing officer on scene, arriving at the garage within seconds of Santiago, Philippou, and Eskins. Brown said she had several opportunities to see the gun. I left out of the station. I went southbound on Town Road. I observed the male running um, with a handgun in his um, hand. Um, Sergeant Santiago was in front of me in the SUV. I observed the gun um, sitting on top of the refrigerator. But here's how she described the gun to Detective Anderson. What did the handgun look like? The handgun, all I saw was like a silver object that resembled a a handgun. I mean, you could clearly see it in his hand, but I wasn't close, like I'm close on the phone to be able to describe everything throughout the time. Whatever you saw. Anderson also interviewed Dean McFadden, who was partnered with Burns that day. He didn't have a view inside the garage during the shooting, but he saw the gun on top of the fridge after it was all over. So the gun was on top of a um, mm-hmm. refrigerator. Did you look at it? Mm-hmm. What color was it? Silver. It was silver. Mm-hmm. What type of weapon was it? Twenty-two. A twenty-two. Yeah. Okay. Ian Mirptens and Thomas Kirby Jr. were never actually asked to describe the gun at all. Detective DeGraffenry did interview Kirby after Burns essentially recited the gun catalog description. Maybe she knew he would never be able to match up. She was much more interested in hearing what Kirby said Keith was doing with the gun. 
Now, is this a full refrigerator, like a full yes, standard refrigerator? Yes, ma'am. It's a white full refrigerator, yes. And it's just sitting by itself? Yes. Okay. Yes. So is he behind it, over top of it, or side of it? How is he positioned? How At that time, I, I only seen him. He's literally going over top of it with the handgun, um, poking his head up and again pointing the gun at us. So he's tall enough to stand over top of a standard size refrigerator? Not fully stand. No, he's using his arm over and poking okay, his Okay, so you straight. can't see his face. You just see his arm. He kept on poking his head up and multiple times, and then he would bring his head back down. Over top of the refrigerator? Yes, ma'am. How tall is the refrigerator? I don't know exactly. Was it a little short one, standard one? Or like a standard size. At the time you have in your regular kitchen? Yes. I don't know how tall they are, but okay. So, but he's able to poke his head over top of it? Yes. I mean, it was dark inside from what I'm saying. I see his head going up and down, but he's pointing the gun at us the entire time. Okay, so that's coming over the refrigerator and happening outside. From what I've seen, he's pointing it over top of the refrigerator, okay. yes, with his hand. He's pointing it over the refrigerator. So how many times did you pop his head up? I don't know exact estimate, ma'am. More than once? Possibly, yes. Again, it's dark inside, so I can't tell you exact estimate. I mean, kind of, kind of think about it. How, how, how are you seeing him do this? So you see the, you see the hand. you know how many times you saw his hand over top of it? I don't know. Kind of think for me. I, I, know, I know it's all just happened. It's kind of like, it's kind of hard to recall everything, but play it back in your mind. You, 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 you come around to where um, Officer Filippo is. Yes. Are you in front of her or behind her? I'm her? on the side of her. I'm on the left-hand side of her. At that okay. Point. And at that point, you see him doing what? Again, poking his head up and raising his arm over top of the refrigerator at us. Okay, so you saw it the first time? Yes. Were they firing at that point? I'm sorry? Were the officers firing at that point? I, I really don't know. I don't know. There's multiple gunshots going on, so I don't know. Was he firing? Did you see him fire? I heard the, the shots. Again, I don't know. Because it was dark inside, so I don't know. Okay, so how do you know he was firing? Because I heard the distinguished difference between a 40 cal okay. and a lower caliber. Did you see a muggle flash or anything? No, ma'am. All right, so you have that that set of fire. So mm -hmm. does the firing stop at any point? Um, basically, when when I think he had, he was struck, the firing stopped. Okay, so you know for a fact you saw him pop up, pop his head up in his hand, in his hand above one at least once. Yes, ma'am. Definitely more than once. Okay, so it's more than once. Um. So what's, what's the next time you saw him do it? Multiple times, like, again, doing it over and over. Because the whole time we're screaming, drop the gun, he's refusing to do so. And he's keep on picking, he's picking his head up and raising his arm, literally pointing the gun straight at us the entire time. But you can't tell which one he's actually firing. No, ma'am. Okay. Now, for about how long this happened? So if he's doing this, pop it up, pointing and popping, over what period of time? I know, I know time is hard to, you know, when you're in the middle of a gun battle. Mm -hmm. But approximately how long did this go on for? Maybe about five to ten minutes. So during that time, this is what you saw him doing? Yes, ma'am. This is honestly one of the only times where Detective DeGraffenried genuinely sounds doubtful about what she's hearing. But for what it's worth, Brown also said that Keith was aiming the gun over top of the refrigerator. Keith is around 5'9", and the fridge is one of those standard white ones that you usually find in rental apartments. I'm going to guess here, but it seems totally feasible to me that Keith would be tall enough to peer over the top of the refrigerator while pointing a gun. But I suspect there are actually way better tactical positions. Anyway... Unlike the other three officers, Kirby didn't observe the gun on top of the fridge after the incident was over. Based on his account, the gun actually would have been somewhere on the floor. So what happened to kind of end it? You know, so you have, you have gunfire going back and forth. Mm -hmm. What was it that ended the whole thing? 
Um, basically, I think he, when he was struck in the cheek, okay. he went down. That's when it, the gun came down, and we proceeded forward. Okay. So you knew that he, he had pretty much either he'd been hit by something, but because he stopped shooting and he went down. Yes. Okay. So he fell on the ground. You could actually see him laying down. Um, I couldn't see that far back, but once I guess the other officers who were closer probably seen that, and I advanced as well with them. Okay. So when you first saw him, what was he doing? He was on his side, and that's when he was uh, first handcuffed. Okay, all right. And he wasn't saying anything or anything? Not that I heard, no, ma'am. Okay, all right. So that's how it all ended. How did it all end? I believe he was struck, and we um, we approached him because he was laying on the ground. Again, we asked to see his hands. I believe he dropped the gun, and that's when we came close and handcuffed him. Okay. Was he saying anything? Um, not to my aware, no, ma'am. How was he taken into custody? He was handcuffed, and we called for a medic immediately. Okay. Now, when he was handcuffed, um, did you observe injuries to him? Yes. Now, who did the handcuff? Who who, who handcuffed him? I, I don't recall. But you didn't. No, ma'am. Okay. So you didn't handcuff him. You don't. No. Kirby said that Keith was silent when he surrendered, but the other officers claimed that Keith actually announced that he was giving himself up. According to Burns, he actually got down on the floor and crawled out from behind the refrigerator. They ordered him to show his hands. He yelled out, he goes, I'll, um, he said, I'll put the gun down, don't shoot me. Okay. And they said, put it, just put it down, show me your hands. And then there was a, uh, you know, like a, a little exchange of, you're not going to shoot me, are you? Like a reassuring. And they were like, no, we're not going to shoot you. Just get on the ground and crawl, you know, away from what they thought was a toolbox. They said, crawl away from the toolbox. So he did that, and that's the first time anybody went in. Both Ian Mirtens and Dean McFadden claimed that Keith stayed behind the refrigerator and just put his hands in the air and didn't crawl anywhere. Askins, I believe he was saying, let me see your hands. At that point is when I actually got a good look. I turned my head into the garage. I saw him. Um, I told him to keep his hands up. Uh, he replied, um, don't shoot me, don't shoot me. That's what he said. He had his hands in the air. He said, don't shoot me, don't shoot me. I told him, I said, nobody's going to shoot you. Um, get your hands up. And uh, he actually got his hands up. And um, Officer Eskins took over the verbal commands. And um, I don't remember which two officers actually walked in and handcuffed him. In McFadden's version, Keith was even chattier. So what happened after that? I mean, they gave verbal commands. Yeah, we were deciding whether we were going to go in or not. I mean, it's our Santiago. And then, all of a sudden, uh, they, were, they were still yelling at him, and then all of a sudden, he's like, all right, I think I'm going to put the gun down. Who said that? The suspect. Oh, you like, heard him say that? Yeah. He's like, all right, I'm, I'm going to put the gun down, put my hands up. Before I do, uh, you guys aren't going to kill me, right? And we were like, yeah, yeah, just put the gun down, put your hands up, and we'll come in and get you. And he's like, uh... And he still, I, I couldn't see in it, but I'm guessing he still had a gun in his hand, because they were still saying he had the, he, it was in his hand. And I was like, and, were, and he was like, okay, okay. So he put his hands up. Did you see this? Did you see him put his hands up? No, his hands were up when I got, when I cleared the doorway. I didn't see him physically do it. Okay. But when we, when we cleared the doorway, because me and Swanson had the, the shield. This is before the shooting or after? No, it's after. This is all after? Yeah, okay. he, all, he decided afterward. Like, okay, so this is after the shooting, what you're describing. According to Brown, Keith gave the officers a heads up about the gun's empty magazine. Burns pulled his handcuffs in and I was directly behind. He pulled his handcuffs out and then I was directly behind him. Mm -hmm. So 
they started advancing in, and I guess he had laid down. He started to comply. He laid down on the ground, put his hands out. Um, Burns went in. Um, I remember I either took the handcuffs off out of his hand or something, but I assisted in putting the handcuffs on him. The suspect um, stated, I didn't even have any bullets in my gun. Y'all should have just um, killed me. Yes. It's worth noting, though, all four officers remained at the crime scene after the shooting incident and then went down to headquarters together. They were somewhere unseen when Detective Boyd rendered the gun safe and realized it wasn't loaded. Oh, and Burns, by the way, he was absolutely sure he had nothing to do with cuffing Keith. When I went in, he was on the ground. He was bleeding. Uh, he was cuffed. So you go in... And what's he doing? He's on the ground. He's laid down. He's just flat down. Yeah. Okay. Space down. Face down. And what's happened? Uh, we handcuffed him. Did you actively handcuff him? No. I don't even know who handcuffed him. So you don't know which officer handcuffed him? No, I don't know who handcuffed him. I could keep going and going because here's the thing. The list of inconsistencies and contradictions gets even longer once Eskins, Philippou, Santiago, and Lopez gave their statements to internal affairs. And then all the officers who testified at one or more of the trials, they've added whole new discrepancies, contradicting their own previous accounts at times. I suspect that trend will continue at Keith's upcoming trial in July. I could easily fill an episode with all of their discrepancies, but this case is dizzying enough as it is. Perhaps the most important and abundant contradictions have to do with where all of the officers were positioned during the incident. You'll hear some of those for yourself next week. Some confusion is to be expected during a stressful incident like this, but nine statements and nearly a dozen trial testimonies later, it's still wildly unclear where each of the shooting officers was positioned every time they pulled the trigger. Here's Seth Staunton explaining why this is so essential for a use-of-force investigation. Every bullet that's fired has to be evaluated as a separate use-of-force, unless bullets are fired very, very, very close together. Each time each one of the officers pulls the trigger, that has to be evaluated not just as part of an overall incident, but also separately as an event that happened in that overall incident. And that's because one gunshot might be justified, but one a few seconds later might not be. The situation in that time could change. So you have to figure out who did what when, because maybe Officer 1 acted appropriately with the first three shots, but then inappropriately with the next five. Or maybe Officer 1 acted entirely appropriately, but Officer 2 was in such a bad position that he never should have shot. So shooting was a violation on his part. Major discrepancies like these were apparent from the start, but FIT detectives made no attempt to resolve any of them. Obvious follow-up questions were not asked during their interviews with witnesses. Opportunities to corroborate certain details by collecting and analyzing forensic evidence were totally ignored. For example, Charles Holden's car was never dusted for fingerprints. No attempt was made to collect surveillance footage from local stores, which might have captured portions of the foot chase. 
Additional witnesses that might have had valuable information were never pursued. No one contacted the two people involved in the initial car accident. Only one of the medics was interviewed, and he even suggested that the detectives talk to his partner, because he had actually talked to the police when they arrived to treat Keith. Most mind-boggling of all is how the bounty of ballistics evidence was just totally wasted. The crime scene tech who processed the police-involved shooting scene marked all of the ballistics evidence, took a ton of photographs. She even drew a sketch indicating where each piece of evidence was found. Then she gathered it all up and put it all together in one envelope without preserving any of that individuality. That greatly limited what could be learned from each piece of evidence going forward. The 32 shell casings that were recovered from the scene, for example, they were matched to the officer's guns, but had they been kept in separate marked envelopes, they would have also indicated where each of the officers was standing when they fired their weapons. The refrigerator Keith was hiding behind had several bullet holes and a substantial amount of his blood on it. All of that was valuable evidence that could have helped explain what the officers' accounts didn't. And it was just left there. I keep thinking about this famous scene from the fourth episode of The Wire, where Bunk and McNulty, two of the show's fictional Baltimore police homicide detectives, go back to the scene of a fatal shooting, pacing around the victim's tiny kitchen in search of something. For five minutes, the duo looks at the room from every possible angle, opening cabinets, crouching, leaning, squinting. It's called the fuck scene because they keep repeating the word in various iterations until they finally hit the jackpot, prying a bullet from its hiding spot. They didn't happen upon the bullet by chance, though. They used the facts and evidence they had available to figure out where to search for even more. A bullet hole in the kitchen window and broken glass on the counter indicated that the shooter had been standing outside. Then, with some basic knowledge of bullet trajectory, they figured out where to look. Motherfucker. Fuck me. It was inside the refrigerator door all along. Prosecutors at long last finally dropped the bogus charge for discharge of a firearm on the first day of Keith Davis Jr.'s trial in February 2016, conceding to a fact that they had known all along. Keith never fired a gun at the police who shot him in June 2015. But he was still facing a boatload of serious allegations, included attempted armed robbery, first-degree assault, and several new gun charges related to a prior felony conviction. As for the Hammerley 22 long rifle, it wasn't going anywhere. Police and prosecutors had much bigger plans. Next week on Undisclosed. or almost three episodes before I succumb to temptation and reference The Wire. That's really not bad. Thanks a bunch to Rabia, Susan, and Colin for welcoming me back into the Undisclosed Fold and for amplifying Keith Davis Jr.'s story. This has been an amazing experience, and I'm super excited to say that we're going to be doing a few more episodes. Thank you to executive producer Mitel Talhan for making that happen. Sound producer Rebecca Lavoie, thank you for making me sound well-rested. I don't know how you do it. Special thanks this week actually goes out to Baynard Woods, Larry Smith Jr., Seth Stoughton, and LaToya Francis-Williams. Thank you for letting me probe your very brilliant, brilliant brains. Team Keith, 
I know I said that this week was going to be your week to shine, but then I had to bump you until next week, where you're going to be extra, extra shiny. I'm flying by the seat of my pants here. What can I say? Kelly Davis, I am still in awe that you brought bagpipes to the state's attorney's fundraising party. Thank you for showing me what legendary trolling looks like. You are truly a multifaceted inspiration. Keith Davis Jr., it was nice to see you in court this week. May next time be the last time. Thank you so much to all of Undisclosed Sponsors for keeping the lights on. And of course, all of our listeners who keep coming back week after week after week. You're amazing. Please make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at UndisclosedPod. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and rate us with five stars. That would be ideal. But we'll take whatever stars you want to give us. See you next week. A road is just a road, but a Jeep SUV isn't just an SUV. Come see for yourself at the Jeep Start Something New sales event. During Owner Appreciation Month, financing at $3,750 total cash allowance on select 2020 Grand Cherokee Laredo 4x4 models and dealer stock the longest. On oldest 20% inventory of 2020 Jeep Cherokee Laredo models as of 1-3-2020 and dealer stock. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery by 2-3-2020. Jeep is a registered trademark.